Welcome to the Kalos Church Podcast. We're honored that you join us here. Kalos is a poorly pronounced Greek word that means beautiful. We chose that name because we believe that the words and ways of Jesus are very beautiful. And so each week we're bringing content to help make known that beauty. So let's go ahead and dive in to this past Sunday's sermon. Today, I want to talk to you about the beauty and difficulty of marriage. You know, in marriage, typically there's an engagement ring, a wedding ring, and then suffering. And uh, I, I believe, though, it's still beautiful and worth fighting for. You know, in the Holy Scriptures, It starts with a a wedding between Adam and Eve, and then Jesus comes to earth and performs his first miracle at a wedding. And then the Bible ends with the book of Revelation leading to the marriage supper of the Lamb, a wedding feast. We see the thread of marriage and weddings through the entirety of the scriptures from the Old to the New Testament. And I know marriage and romance can be a hot topic in the church, but I want to elevate the biblical beauty of marriage, not bring shame or condemnation, but to help us walk in the blessings of family that God promises us. In the eyes of Jesus, marriage isn't just a piece of paper. And if you miss the importance of marriage, I believe that you're missing a huge component of what makes us Christians. God has a high view of marriage, and for those of us in the Christian faith, we should too. In fact, let's read Hebrews 13, 4. Would you read this with me out loud? Marriage should be honored by all. Say it with me. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. And so this is an intense view, that marriage should be honored by all. But I believe we live in a society that says things like marriage is just a piece of paper. It's not a big deal. I believe it's lost some of the honor. It's one of the reasons that when Amrith and I first started to fall in like and then love, I wanted this marriage to start off strong. I wanted to have a good, godly foundation. And maybe that's because in my family, every generation that I can think of has gotten a divorce. And even as a a young boy, 11 years old, experiencing my family being torn apart through the tragedy and pain of divorce that have left scars on my life, has left me with coping mechanisms and habits that I still carry today due to that divorce. In fact, a lot of my therapy that I'm still in to this day, a lot of my EMDR sessions that I'm doing regularly have to do with some of the thought processes and the patterns and the thinking and the cycles of my inner life that have happened as a result of that divorce. So when we first started falling in like, I said, okay, we are going to do this right. I remember before the first date, I grabbed my mentor. He was a Korean pastor. I lived in his basement. And I said, this is what I'm thinking about doing for the first date. I want to grab Amritha, bring her to the church. I'm going to pull out the whiteboard. And what we're going to do is we're going to plan a mission statement and a vision statement, and we are going to make sure this thing is going in the right direction. And in fact, I think we should do a SWOT analysis. We're going to talk about the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, and the threats that could sabotage our marriage before it even starts. And he looked at me with the eyes that only a seasoned Korean pastor can look at you with. 
And he said, uh, that's got to be the worst date idea I've ever heard in my entire life. And uh, probably because I listened to his advice, I'm now married today with two kids. <laughs> Glory to God. And to that Korean pastor, I say, kamsamida. In fact, I'm going to throw in a chungmal in there. Chungmal kamsamida, which means thank you very much. And so all God's people said, amen. You know, I didn't want to go through the trauma of more divorce, so I took relationship and marriage very seriously. I wasn't dating just for the sake of dating. I was dating for the sake of mating. <laughs> that is, advancing the kingdom of God through the ideal of godly marriage. I was dating because I, I wanted to get married. I wanted to build a foundation that could break the cycle of what I had experienced in my family. But in our culture, in our society, I just don't think we honor and take marriage seriously like we used to. There are two views I want to explain that I'm seeing in our culture. I think one of the first views we often see when it comes to marriage is that marriage is just casual. Those phrases, it's just a piece of paper. It's not a big deal. People like each other, so they start dating, and then they start sleeping together. If that's working out well, they move in together, and they do all the things that married people do without the label. As long as consenting adults agree, it's okay to do whatever we want, so we're told. It's not that big a deal. It's convenient. It saves our finances, and it gives us the chance to test things out before we make it official. And if people don't pass the test, well, then you move on, and you start the process over and over and over again. This is called cohabitation, where people live with each other and act married without being married. It reminds me of what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, she replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, Burn, For you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. So Jesus says uh, living together does not constitute marriage. And so this is a casual view of marriage, which I think a lot of us have adopted. Another view I'm seeing in the scripture is a contractual view. A contractual view of marriage is rooted in self-preservation and distrust. Any contracts, if you have a contract with your landlord, it's because they don't trust you. It's not, I love you, it's, I love the way you make me feel. That's the phrase of contractual relationship. As long as you make me happy, I'm committed to you. If you maintain your looks, your wealth, your attitude, and your abilities, if you continue to make me happy, then I will continue to make you happy. It's contractual. It's tit for tat. You hold up your end, I'll hold up my end. But then someone adjusts or grows or life gets hard, and then you see situations like this article I just read. If we could see this picture about this couple, they were in a long-term cohabitating relationship, but then this man got cancer, and the woman says, your cancer is bad for my mental health, so I don't want to be in a relationship with you. And so the headline is, I dump my man because he has cancer. But I, I still like him, so I'll raise money by running a marathon in his honor. And so this, I think, is normal in our society. It's a contract. You hold up the end of the deal, I hold up my end of the deal. If you make me happy, then I'll make you happy. But as soon as you interfere with my mental health, as soon as you're going in a different direction, we break it off, 
and then we start the process over and over again. I think this is one of the reasons divorce rates in America are rising, because in our casual and contractual views of marriage, we've put in our muscle memory the habit of divorcing, starting over, breaking up, moving on, and believing that another person will solve the problems that we've been facing in our existing relationships. And uh, in contractual relationships, Jesus had to deal with some of these situations as well. In Matthew 19.3, some Pharisees came and tried to trap Jesus with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? So they're looking for loopholes to break the contract of marriage and end up in divorce. And today, I want to dive into the context of this scripture a little bit more, but I first and foremost want you to notice how harshly Jesus responds. He becomes what some people might call savage Jesus, savage Jesus. So these Bible scholars come up to talk to him about the Bible, and then in Matthew 19, Jesus' first question to them is, haven't you read the scriptures? Savage Jesus. Bible scholars asking Jesus about the Bible, and Jesus, I like to hear it sarcastically. This is my God. I like serving this God. He says, haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied, they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother, and then he's joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. And so Jesus, before going in a list of exceptions for divorce, before Jesus explores loopholes or finding any reason to, for divorce, before he goes into prohibitions, do's and do nots, Jesus says, hey, why don't we not go through this situation? Let's go back to the first pages of the Bible. Let's go to Genesis, first book of the Bible, and talk about God's original intent his ideal, his vision, his elevation for marriage before we go into this argument, which is an argument off of Deuteronomy 24. But he doesn't even go there. He starts with Genesis. And he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate, which is a crazy phrase because we plan the wedding. We say the vows. We make the commitment. But here, Jesus is saying, it's actually God that's putting this couple together. The two are becoming one, and God's the one who's doing it. Yeah, we might make the arrangement, but the person who makes it one is actually God. And then he says, let no one separate what God has put together. And he offers a third view of marriage is what I want to offer you today. It's not casual. It's not contractual. But the way it seems Jesus views marriage is the word called covenantal. Everybody say covenantal. So it's not casual. It's not contractual. It's a covenant. And so what is the marriage covenant? Well, the marriage covenant isn't just a promise of current love, but future love. A covenant is always initiated for the benefit of the other person. It's not motivated in selfish ambition. A covenant is not just a commitment of policies, but of persons. It's saying our lives are now one. Our families are now one. I'm not just making a contract of do's and do nots. We're exchanging our very lives. Craig Rochelle writes like this, a covenant is based on mutual commitment motivated by a sacrificial love for the other. And so in Hebrew culture, when they would join families or join in a marriage or making an oath, they would cut 
covenant. And so they would take a bull and they would state their oath and then they would cut the bull in half and they would walk seven times around it and say, let this happen to us if we break our oath. In the same way this bull was cut and we can't put it together, let that happen to me if I choose to break an oath with you. It wasn't something that could be separated and then just so easily put back together. It was a forever commitment focused on the benefit of the other party. In Hebrew wedding culture, they would take the bride and the groom, they would cut both of their hands and put their hands together, because remember in Leviticus, we're taught that there's life in the blood, so they would exchange their life, they would mingle their blood together and say, the two have become one, we are now walking together as one flesh. In fact, you might have heard of this in other cultures, but it's also in the Hebrew culture. On the day of their wedding, after they make their vows official, they go on to the wedding night where they would have sex for the first time in a place called the Hapa, C-H-U-P-P-A-H. And the whole family would say their goodbyes, you know, like we throw rice at weddings. Watch them go into this uh, wedding night suite. And then they would make their wedding official by the consummation, what we would call wedding night sex. Just want to make sure you understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then uh, as they, they make this official, they would take sheets that would become bloody from the first night of sex. And then they would show them to their family and said, hey, guys, we did it. <laughs> we did not do that on our wedding night. <laughs> It was an ancient Hebrew tradition. Maybe you guys have done this. But it was a way of saying, hey, the two have become one. We, there's been the shedding of blood to show that we have entered into a covenant, a covenantal marriage that is permanent, that's forever, that's not based on a contract. It's not based on selfish interests. It's for the benefit of the person. I am giving my life for you. I am committed to making you happy. And I believe this elevation of covenant in marriage is so beautiful. It just smells of self-sacrificial love. I will take care of you. I love this thought by G.K. Chesterton, who's known as being C.S. Lewis's mentor. G.K. Chesterton pointed out that when we fall in love, we have a natural inclination not to just express affection, but to make promises to each other. Lovers find themselves almost driven to make vow-like claims. I will always love you, we say, when we are at the height of passion. And we know that the other person, if he or she is in love with us, will want to hear those words. Real love, the Bible says, instinctively desires permanence. And I think that's beautiful. I believe that true love desires permanence. You know, uh, 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 that song, you know, Whitney Houston remade that song. It goes something like... <coughs> <clears throat> a little like this. And I will always love you. You guys know what I'm talking about? Thank you. <clears throat> How weird would that song be if we did what's common in American culture? And I two months will love you right that'd be weird right you don't say oh girl i could love you for the next 21 days 
Like, it, it doesn't feel natural. Deep in our bones, we long for a love that lasts. True love desires permanence. And this happens in the context of covenant. And it's what God wants for us. It's why in our wedding vows, we don't just commit our love for one another. We invite a minister who represents God. And we're saying, my oath, my covenant to you is not just for you, but it's, it's also a covenant to God that I will steward your child, your daughter, your son. I will love them with the love that you've given me. It's beautiful. It's elevated. It's what Jesus wanted us to see before going into a debate about divorce. He says, what was God's original intent and desire and vision? And it's beautiful. Marriage should be honored by all. And there are benefits to that kind of secure relationship. I believe that the marriage covenant allows us to be transparent without fear of abandonment. We can be ourselves. We can be vulnerable. We can not be afraid of losing the someone because of a lack of performance. I know we live in a try-before-we-buy kind of culture where we don't want to buy the, the full app. We'll buy the month-to-month app. Even some of us right now still haven't committed to our Super Bowl plans because there might be something better. First of all, shame on you. <laughs> Commit to the party. We need to know how many hot dogs to buy. <laughs> but we live in this culture that likes to test drive things, sample things. We're so afraid of commitment. But can you see the insecurity that brings to someone? As long as you perform, as long as you behave, as long as you look good, as long as you make enough money, as long as you make me happy, then I'm in. Well, for a culture that sure wants to be a human being instead of a human doing, casual and contractual relationships sure does support performance-based relationships. I love this quote by Tim Keller. He writes, when dating or living together, you have to prove your value daily by impressing and enticing. You have to show that the chemistry is there and the relationship is fun and fulfilling or it will be over. The legal bond of marriage, however, creates a space or security where we can open up and reveal our true selves. We can be vulnerable, no longer having to keep up facades. We don't have to keep selling ourselves. We can lay the last layer of our defenses down and be completely naked, both physically and in every other way. This blending of law and love fits our deepest instincts. You know, when we were first dating, I didn't fire in front of Amritha but in the bond of a secure relationship. I can be myself. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I can be myself. And so let, let's break down what Jesus is talking about more in the scripture. So he says, haven't you read the scripture in Matthew 19? And then he talks about two becoming one, the ideal. But then in verse 7, they ask, they counter Jesus. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. But it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. And then Jesus' disciples said to him, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. And so in this context, men could divorce women for any reason that they wanted. Like, it was contractual. 
I don't like you, you're not behaving, you're not performing. Well, in that context, women were not worth that much more than property. And so a woman could be passed on from family to family to family. They're referencing Deuteronomy 24. So let's read what they're arguing about here. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing, that's a harsh word, just displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, so it's not even a conversation. She's like a piece of property, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And after it, she leaves his house, and she becomes the wife of another man, just a selling of goods. And her second husband dislikes her, just dislikes her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house like a piece of property. Or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled, like she's this object. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. And so they're like talking about this policy like it's not about a person. It's just a piece of property. They're treating this woman like someone I can just disregard, disband because I am displeased with her. Isn't that kind of ugly? And it gives you a little more context. We read earlier about the woman at the well. You have had five husbands, but the man you're living with right now is not your husband. I've heard a lot of preachers say, oh, this is a sexually immoral woman. This is a promiscuous woman. Uh, But if you understand the context, she didn't even have the legal right to divorce these men. They could only divorce her. So she's being passed from one family to the next husband, to to five husbands, like an object. That's gross. That's horrible. And Jesus says, Whoa, whoa, whoa. This was not why I created marriage. This wasn't to make women objects. They're your equal. Women weren't created from your feet or your head. They're created from the side. They are equal. What are you doing here with this? Before we even have this conversation about divorce, like, you need to understand, like, women are worthy of all dignity. The two become one flesh. There's not a hierarchy here. They're one flesh here. Let's elevate Marriage, and let's be honest, when it comes to cohabitation in the days of the Bible, and even today in America, cohabitation favors men at the expense of women. And I believe cohabitation creates an environment where today we are still treating them like objects. I mean, take 10 seconds to Google the danger of cohabitation for women. They're more likely to get cheated on. They're more likely to get an STD. When they get pregnant, men are often going to leave them, and the women will end up raising the children by themselves without the protection of legal support, like child support. They're left on their own. And we as a culture, we elevate, oh, we just want to live sexually free, but it's at the expense of women. And it's not what Jesus wants. They're more likely to end up in poverty. The children are more likely ending up in jail. And people say, oh, we're just testing this out to see if we're compatible. Well, look at the data. Cohabitating couples that end up getting married are, like some stats say, four times more likely to get divorced than those who just get married right away. And so look at the data. Look at the stats of what this does. Cohabitation favors men at the expense of women back in that day, but also today as well. And so I don't want this to be a place of shame, especially if you're living together, especially if it's like for financial reasons or you didn't have teaching like this or you saw everybody else do it and it seems acceptable, but I'm telling you what, this is not the ideal God has for you. And uh, Jesus, 
he at this point dives into it. And he says, okay, now that we've set the vision for bringing dignity to women, the two becoming one, this is covenant, uh, let me tell you what I believe. And uh, I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife, in verse 9, and marries someone else commits adultery, unless his wife has been unfaithful. And so he says, okay, you can't just divorce your wife for any old reason, only for sexual unfaithfulness. Let's elevate this whole institution. And I, I want you to notice how the disciples respond. Now, the disciples are godly, and we honor and respect them. But they had a lot of work to do, especially when it comes to empowering and dignifying women. The disciples said to Jesus, well, if we can't treat women like property, if we can't divorce women for just being displeased with them, it is better not to marry. Isn't that gross? If we can't treat women like property... If we can't abandon women just because they displease me, then it's better not to marry. They recognize that this is a covenant, a commitment for the betterment of the other party. And that's a hard ask, isn't it? It's a hard choice. It's self-sacrificial love. But this is what God calls us to do. And so what, what do we do with this? Well, just real practically, it, if you're cohabitating and you've said this phrase, well, marriage isn't just a big deal, it's a piece of paper. Let me just say, if marriage isn't a big deal, just get married then. Stop test driving your relationships for so long and sign the paper. Unless that's a big deal for you. Well, then maybe it's a big deal. Just get married. Last month, there was a couple that came up to me and said, Pastor Pretty, will you marry me? We just, we want to get legally married, want to get married in the eyes of God before we plan the big ceremony. And so instead of planning your wedding for 10 years, get married and throw the party afterwards. And I'm not trying to bring shame or guilt or condemnation. I'm saying I will do the officiation. I'll make it happen for you. Let's just get this going. Let's unlock the power of covenantal love, okay? Because marriage is meant for our protection. Just like Jesus was trying to dignify and protect women in that day and age, I believe it protects us. Like, if your partner won't respect God's sexual boundaries before marriage, what makes you think they'll do it during marriage? This protects us. We practice the habits we want to have in marriage before marriage starts. Marriage is meant for our protection. If you want the blessing of God on your love life, try including his ways in your love life. It's not a place of shame. It's a place of elevation and what God wants for you. And we're the kind of church that says, hey, if you've been divorced, if you're cohabitating, if you even disagree with me, we want you in our church. In fact, we need you in our church. We want to help you. And let's have a conversation if I'm offending you. But if you're like, I feel stuck in my finances. I had never heard this before. I don't know what my next steps are. We want to be the kind of church that says, we're not just going to preach ideals on the stage. We're going to walk with you through this entire journey. Amen, Kalos Church. We've got your back even if we disagree. We've got your back even if we have all fallen short of the glory of God or the glory of marriage. We've got your back, and we'll walk with you through this hand in hand. We want to be a messy church, not a perfect church. That's what we want. And so today, I believe that casual relationships and contractual relationships, they are practicing divorce and are getting into our muscle memory of relationships. I want to give you this illustration that's really helped me understand some things in my life. And it's a book I read 
called the second happy about going from the honeymoon phase of a relationship into the glorious phase where we have some scars and yet we've still stood for each other. In relationships, dating, marriage, whatever, uh, usually we start in zone A. It's full of promise, the honeymoon phase. I like you. I don't mind the way you chew gum. It's okay. You know, and uh, usually it's like opposites attract, but then they go to zone B and then opposites attack. It's like we're struggling. I, I don't like the way you chew gum now. I, I, you know, we're facing financial problems. We're getting in arguments. We got in some issues with our family. And now life becomes full of hardship. And then we want to be that couple that stood the test of time. We get into zone C. We have some battle wounds, but we said, hey, I've loved you at your worst. I've seen you at your worst. But guess what? We've made it this far, and we're still here for each other. I've said some things I regret, but guess what? I'm still standing by your side. We want to go to that zone C, but usually because of our muscle memory and our societal habits for relationships, we start off happy in zone A, we hit a hardship in zone B, and then we immediately go to zone Q where we say, hey, uh, you know what? This relationship isn't working out. If I was with someone better, who was nicer, if someone understood me more, then I would be happy. And so then we go looking for another zone A. Are you tracking with me? And it becomes this cycle. And I, I believe many of us can relate to the cycle because in, instead of stewarding our relationships, we're looking for better relationships, thinking that someone else will solve the problem that I've been creating consistently in all my relationships. And so, uh, and I, I know we have people who are in regular seasons of life. Maybe you're going through a divorce. Maybe you had a divorce. I, I'm not trying to bring shame because I relate to this. You know, like I've been saying, every generation of my family has gone through a divorce. And honestly, those habits live in me. I want to be vulnerable so that this isn't a place of shame. And I just want to lead by example. But in 2020, after my son was diagnosed with autism, and then it was looking like our daughter would. And this isn't like quirky personality autism. It was like my son lost his ability to walk. He lost all of his words. I couldn't talk with him. And I was thinking, my goodness, am I ever going to have any relationship with my kids like I know how to? Like conversationally, we'll be able to interact, play catch, things like that. And I went into just trauma, shock, pain. And I, I just started thinking, I need to start over. I need to abandon this family and start something better. I need to find his own name. I remember I, I talked to Amritha, and I said, hey, Amritha, everything in me wants to leave this marriage. I just, I don't desire to be here anymore. I can't do this anymore. And I, I, that's what I want. I want to start over. And I just remember Amritha, who had felt so secure in our marriage, she heard my covenantal vows because we never even joked about divorce. In any fight, we never brought up the divorce word. We're just like, we've made a covenant. But here, I was breaking the security she had felt our entire marriage. And it was like I pulled the rug right out of her, and it caused us to spiral and say things we regret. And there's so much harm because of my insecurity. Because I had this in my muscle memory. I had a fight or flight response. And I was choosing, just like every generation in my family, I'm going to run away. And it was like, our marriage started off so good, full of promise. But now here we are in the B zone. There's problems. And I'm in the B zone. Amritha never said I was acting like a little B, but I was in the B zone. I was, I was struggling. She never said that. Thank you. But it, it was tough. And... 
I began to fantasize a lot about the Q zone. And maybe you've been there. I mean, I, if I just wasn't, if my kids were better, if my wife was better. But I, I, I learned, like, there's a glory from enduring. Instead of looking for the perfect relationship, to create the perfect relationship. There's a glory in enduring. When Amritha and I, we can now say on the other side, four years later from that moment, we're starting to experience the glory of Zone C. You saw me at my worst, and you still love me? Thank you. You've made me feel so secure. You saw me when I was willing to throw it away and you saw me in my trauma, but you held space and grace for me to grow up, to mature, to experience the glory of covenantal love. Wow, marriage is amazing. We don't just get ready for marriage. Marriage helps us to get ready. It grows us up, it matures us, and that happens in the context of security. You know, we can sometimes look at other relationships and be like, the grass is greener on the other side. But here's the spiritual truth. You can quote me on this. You know where the grass is greener? It's where the fertilizer is. The grass is greener where it smells like poop. <laughs> and I'm telling you what, when you got a husband who puts the B&B zone, it smells like poop. It's not good. It's not good. But I, I was convicted to stop looking for an escape, a perfect relationship, but to cultivate the perfect relationship, the godly relationship that God wants for me. And so for today, I just want to challenge you. Don't quit in the B zone. Don't quit when it gets tough. Endure. Stand with covenantal, self-sacrificial love. You can experience that. And even if you're single today, I want you to know you are in a covenantal love. Because this is how God loves us. He says, this is my body. I give it for you. This is my blood. I, I, I've been cut. I, I'm spilling my blood for you. And remember, we say this every Sunday. This is a sign of the new covenant God has for all of us. We're all in this marriage covenant with him. And so at Caleb's, we're not trying to idolize marriage because both being married and both being single are high callings in the kingdom of God. Remember that Jesus lived a single but very significant and fulfilled life as a single person. He never had kids. He never got married. But still, I think Jesus was a very important part of the kingdom. Can I get a good amen? But all in all, we, the church, are his bride, and Jesus is our, our groom, and we are all part of this covenantal marriage, permanent love that's not based on our performance. It's not based on what we do. It's because God chooses to self-sacrificially love you and you and you. And he initiated this relationship for your benefit because he cares you. So you don't have to be a human doing, but you can be a human being who receives the covenant love of God who died on the cross for all of us. And so with that love that we freely received, I bless your marriages to endure the B-zone. I bless your relationships to endure the B-zone and experience to see the C-zone. And that you would practice godly habits before you get married and step up to experience the beauty and ideal of the marriage that God calls us to honor. Can I get a good amen? You can have a 100% chance at a success marriage with God.
God. God created marriage. He will sustain marriage, and he wants to set you up for success. Can I get a better amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. And I pray that you would help us to operate and walk in the beauty of covenantal marriage. Lord, I pray that you would empower us, equip us to say, I'm not going to quit. Even though every generation around me has been divorced, maybe I've gone through a divorce. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to settle to cultural views of what marriage is. But Lord, I pray that I would conform to what you want. And Lord, I just pray if there's any shame or guilt or condemnation in just a, a negative, evil way, Lord, I just rebuke that. I pray that this would be a place of truth and love. And Lord, that we wouldn't just say, hey, go do this. Go be warmed and not provide a blanket. But I pray, Lord, for anybody who's like looking for next steps, how do I handle this specific situation I'm in? Lord, I pray that we as Kalos Church would be the kind of church that could walk people in through messy, regular, real life, the kind of life that I desperately needed help in. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, help us and bless our relationships. In the name of Jesus, everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Thank you so much for joining us for the Kalos Church Podcast. We'll be back here every week with fresh content. But hey, I want to give you an invitation to our Sunday morning service. We'd love to meet you in person. We have multiple service times every single Sunday morning in downtown Bellevue, Washington. If you would be interested in joining us, just go to www.kalos.church. All the information you need is there. You can actually even click a link to sign up and save a seat so we can help make sure you feel comfortable coming and hanging out with us in person. So thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time.